from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Happy New Year! It's so good to be back with you. Often on At Liberty, we detail what is happening in the field of civil rights and public interest law from an issue perspective. This week, we're doing something a little different. We're highlighting the people behind that work, specifically the contributions of women and non-binary people to the movement of resistance law. Women weren't always allowed to be lawyers. In fact, in 1873, the U.S. Supreme Court said that women had no constitutional right to practice law. Thanks to women who fought back, that is no longer our reality. And actually, it's quite the opposite. Women are now seen, celebrated, and remembered at the highest levels of the practice. This advancement is due to the work of hidden figures throughout history, like Polly Murray, for example, who you'll hear more about today. We're sharing a conversation between two women lawyers. ACLU's very own senior staff attorney, Jillian Thomas, is in conversation with Dahlia Lithwick, legal journalist and author of the new book, Lady Justice. Together, they discuss Dahlia's new book that traces the history of women in law and highlights the work of women lawyers, most notably since 2016, who have taken up the mantle to fight back against injustice that oppresses the most marginalized and threatens all of us. Dahlia argues that in a constitutional democracy like our own, power is for the taking, and that women have heeded that call and stepped into the arena to fight. With that, I give you Jillian Thomas and Dahlia Lithwick. I'm Jillian Thomas, uh, she, her pronouns, senior staff attorney with uh, the Women's Rights Project. And it's my great delight to be um, joined today and in conversation with my dear, dear friend, Dahlia Lithwick, who likely needs no introduction, but I'll dispense with the formalities quickly. She's a regular contributor on MSNBC, and she's senior editor at Slate, where for more than two decades, she's been the chief legal correspondent as well as the Supreme Court correspondent. And she's also the host of the wildly popular as well as award-winning Supreme Court podcast, Amicus. Less well known about Dahlia is that she was my college roommate, um, where uh, I can confirm that she has been both brilliant and funny um, forever. And uh, she also is an expert lip syncer to many of the hits of the 80s. Uh, I don't think we'll have a chance today to see those mad skills, but um, suffice it to say... They are there. Um, Dolly is here because she published a fabulous book that was an instant New York Times bestseller, Lady Justice, which profiles the many women lawyers who stepped up to fight the grave injustices uh, unleashed by the Trump era. Dahlia, welcome. Thank you. I've said this to Jillian privately, but I do want to say publicly that um, when I was trying to figure out a template for my book um, and when Jillian was working on her book and when it was published, we were in conversation actually at the ACLU about it. But Jillian actually doesn't get enough credit, so I will give it now for like mapping uh, a template for how to think about how to do this work because it was really overwhelming and I was a journalist. I wasn't 
a book writer. So I just actually want to, as a point of personal privilege, thank you for uh, what felt like the breadcrumbs uh, when I was just completely overwhelmed. I would um, turn to your book and say to myself, okay, I can build this because I I can see the architecture. So just I'm done now, but mutual fawning ends now. Okay. Well, that's incredibly generous and I'm um, incredibly flattered that, uh, <laughs> that I could play even a small role um, in really what is a terrific and super engaging book. Why don't you tell us about the genesis for this book, where you got the idea and how you went about deciding what people and cases to include? I think that the truth is I just lived this book in real time. Um, Every one of these stories that I ended up writing about and like truthfully dozens more that I didn't end up, you know, this book could have had 10,000 chapters, but I was covering these cases as I went along. So part of it was, this was the water I was swimming in for a lot of years. Part of it was a realization I had really early on that women were popping up in the sort of legal resistance in outsized numbers to the proportion that they were in the practice and outsized numbers necessarily sometimes to the proportion that they were getting attention. Uh, it just felt that right from the beginning, and I think I point this out in the chapter about the travel ban, and I know ACLU is at the beating heart of that too, when you kind of ran the numbers of who showed up at the airports on that first night after Becca Heller and others put out the call and said, lawyers, just show up and we don't care what kind of lawyers you are. You can be divorce lawyers. You can do trust and estates. Show up at airports, help people out. That women really out of all proportion showed up and that, um, again, this is just an N of five, but four of the first five judges that enjoined the travel ban by the luck of the draw were women. So I think in some ways I was wearing that hat for all of the subsequent years when I was reporting where I just kept thinking, what if there is something going on right now that was obviously if you watched the Women's March and the ways that women organized to save the Affordable Care Act. I mean, women were really activated But I think for me, the question was, is there a legal lane in which that was happening? And were there tools of the law that women were deploying in really interesting way that was separate and apart from the Women's March and the sort of women's political movements? And so I think that was the animating idea. And then I guess I would just say... This felt like I was writing a history book, and it could have been, and then Dobbs happened uh, as it was going to print, and I had to both reevaluate and rethink, but also, I think, re-argue that maybe the way out of Dobbs, which felt like a bottomless pit, had to do with some of the lessons that I had learned from writing the book. Before we get to those conclusions, though, let's go back to the beginning of the book, because you open not only with an epigraph from one of Polly Murray's poems, but then you also discuss her career and her contributions quite a bit. I'm using the pronoun her. It could very well more accurately be there or they. And given what we know about about her struggles. Um, but tell us about why you start a book, you know, that's that's grounded in 2017 and beyond with someone practicing in the mid 1900s. And just for for those of you who aren't familiar with Polly Murray's uh, work, they were exceptionally important to the ACLU's work and specifically the Women's Rights Project's work, serving on the board of directors and then really coming up with the template for the legal um, framework that RBG later used to such great effect 
um, in her work at the Women's Rights Project. So Polly Murray answered two questions for me, Jillian. One was, what do we do with the problem of RBG? <laughs> Which I say, knowing that you and I both have like the throw pillow and the mug. Like, I think, you know, I was worried and I continue to be worried about the ways in which RBG hagiography standing alone, particularly for young women, was getting almost to be a proxy for doing social justice work. And listen, I mean, we live in a, a time of brands and branding, but I was was just very anxious that the story we were telling as a culture about RBG both before and after she died was nobody worry she's going to save all of us she's got the whole world in her hands and in much the same way that today we talk about Merrick Garland that way or that we you know used to talk about Bob Mueller that way that this hero worship of these singular legal figures detracts from our own obligation to do the work. It's very complicated because, as I said, I have the throw pillow, I have the t-shirt, I have the earrings. But I also think we have somehow signaled to young women that it is enough to, like, revere legal heroines and, and that that is sort of a form of of social justice work. And so I was a little bit trying to think that problem through because it's an intensely real problem, not just for women, I think just in a culture where we just keep waiting for somebody to save us. I think the other problem was that I was writing a book and some of the characters in my book were kind of obscure. And I was trying to justify, as I said at the beginning, you know, why this person and not that person. And, you know, who the heck is Bridget Amiri? Who the heck is Becca Heller? Like, I've never heard of Nina Perales. And so I wanted to make the point that every one of these people was an avatar for all of the women over all of history who have largely toiled in obscurity throughout their lives, never getting credit. And who better to be an avatar for that avatar than Polly Murray? And I think I wanted to say that by every law of what is fair and just, every law school in the country should have a Polly Murray chair and a Polly Murray library, and we should be reading books. And I don't know about you, I didn't learn about Polly Murray in three years of law school. I learned about Polly Murray only after I noticed in interviews with Justice Ginsburg that Justice Ginsburg kept name-checking Polly Murray. And so to me, the question became really almost this kind of two sides of the same coin. Who gets credit? Who gets famous? Who do we expect to lift us all up and hold up the sky? Who is doing the work? Not that RBG wasn't, but who's not always getting credit? And so I wanted this book to be a little bit of inversion of that, which is to sort of say, if I looked around and everybody was particularly after Justice Ginsburg died, either relitigating her retirement as though that was useful, right? Like it's her fault, which is the flip of the hagiography. It's all her fault or just feeling hopeless. And so I wanted this book to be a celebration of the what I call the Ruth Baby Ginsburgs all around us. You know, the people who, I mean, you work with them every day. And I just think that getting credit isn't the end in and of itself because women have historically never worked toward that end. And if we did, we wouldn't be doing the work we do. I'm just curious, as you interviewed other women lawyers for this book, did you 
find similar ignorance of Murray and all of her accomplishments? I didn't ask everyone. I will say this will surprise you not at all. There was a massive racial divide. Um, I think um, a lot of the Black women lawyers who've been doing this fight had known a lot about Polly Murray and a lot of white women I have noticed in the wake of the book as well, uh, just didn't. I should also note that while I was writing the book, the amazing film, My Name is Polly Murray by uh, Betsy West and Julie Cohen came out. And so then there did feel like there was like a little bit of a general uptick in uh, knowledge and understanding. But I think that this is very much of a piece, and I know we're going to talk about Dobbs in a second, Jillian, but I will say it's of a piece with my post-Dobbs recognition that the work of Peggy Cooper Davis and Dorothy Roberts and Michelle Goodwin, you know, Black women who've been predicting this for 15 years, all of it was much more known to Black women scholars than to white women scholars. Pivoting a a little bit, um, it's pretty well known that Polly Murray's activism and, and creativity in devising legal theories was fueled by her myriad own experiences of being sidelined, marginalized, forgotten, misattributed or non-attributed and erased. And you made the decision to be very personal about some of your own experiences in that regard in writing this book. Most notably, for folks who haven't read the book, there's a chapter about the white supremacist violence in uh, the convulsion of violence in Charlottesville in the summer of 2017, where Dolly was a longtime resident, then also in the chapter about Me Too and the very public reckoning with um, Judge Kaczynski and his what came to be um, revealed was his serial harassment of particularly clerks, but women lawyers generally, also in 2017 in the in the wake of the Me Too movement. And then also you're, of course, a woman and a woman lawyer living and laboring under the same structures that the folk, you know, the, the um, subjects of your book were. And can you talk about the decision to, it's never fun when you're the journalist to be the story. Um, talk about your decision to, in those chapters, really foreground your experience and be quite personal and vulnerable. And then also, I mean, you weave a lot of personal um, tidbits, a lot of wisdom from your sons and husband um, throughout the pages and talk about that decision. I mean, I think at the at the most macro level, I've always felt that we are such creatures of our families and our stories and that the sort of facade that you have to put on in your professional life, uh, that you are not, in fact, anything but a work robot. Uh, you know, I mean, I was like spilling breast milk around the U.S. Supreme Court before it was, you know, cool. Like, I just think it's harder to to hold on to that, uh, I found, as a woman, uh, because there was just there was so much mushiness between categories and because I think I'd always... And and we can come back to the ways in which humor is a bit of a deflection because it was a little bit of a deflection, but it was always, you know, I I felt it was really important, for instance, if I was talking to law students uh, to clock the fact that I had kids and that, you know, I 
famously once on C-SPAN pulled out a tiny pair of boys underpants from my purse because my son was potty training. Like it's nothing you can do once you're on C-SPAN with Spider-Man underpants, like you just have to own it. And so I've always tried to be really mindful of saying like, this is the world we live in. I think in some sense, COVID Zoom has given us all a version of that. And then I think more earnestly, I didn't feel like I could write about these women and their struggles with both that good and that bad of the legal system and the seam of, is this the agent of my oppression or is this going to be the machinery of our dignity and equality without talking about my own anxieties about it? And for me, and I think David Cole will remember, you know, I was in a welter about what I thought about the First Amendment around Charlottesville and the the marches. And I was writing about it in real time. And I was trying to map Skokie onto Charlottesville and think about that in incredibly personal terms as somebody who's been a First Amendment evangelist my whole life. And then again, with the Me Too stuff, there is an almost perfect correlation between the chapter where I talk about Judge Kaczynski and later talk about the ways that we let down Christine Blasey Ford after the Brett Kavanaugh hearing that are about why am I not saying this thing that I'm feeling? I was doing the journalism of that. You know, I kept uh, what I thought was the secret about Judge Kaczynski's conduct for two decades. And so in a weird way, I think in a book that you're talking about, um, these systems are broken. They're not working, whether it's the confirmation system or the complete inability of the Article Three judiciary to police sexual harassment, to not put my own self in there and my stories in there, I think at some point would have been malpractice. And so um, to be sure, I absolutely hate writing about myself. I flick it, and you, you made this point earlier, there was a moment when I had finally decided, and I only decided to do it in the context of Me Too and Judge Kaczynski because other women came forward before me, even though I had known and had talked about his uh, abuse. And after Heidi Bond and Emily Murphy came forward, both of whom were younger than me and both of whom I felt if I had done something earlier, might not have suffered what they suffered, including Leah Lippman, including so many women who came after. So I was full of a lot of guilt about having not talked about it openly. And um, I was standing outside an urgent care uh, in Florida where I was about to give a speech and I thought I was having a heart attack because I couldn't believe I was going to write a piece sort of me tooing Judge Kaczynski in real time. And my son, who was then about 14, I think called and said, look, Sometimes you have to tell your story so other people can tell theirs. And this is my, like, I have to be clear, like, not my sensitive son, like, this is my goofy son. But it was such a lovely way of reminding me that this was going to open the door for other people, but it would have had to be personal. And in a book that is a tribute to so many women willing to tell their stories, I felt like to hide behind mine would have been wrong. There are sort of twin themes that emerged to me in reading your book that I think kind of flow intellectually from what you were just talking about, which is the idea of having faith in institutions and faith in the law and faith in the Supreme Court and the courts in general, and then also real despair about those institutions and the harm that they are premised on, the harm that they continue to do, the harm you know through silencing dissent or dangerous individuals. 
And there's so much in your book that's triumphant and heroic and you want to stand up and cheer, or I even did shed a a tear or two. But then there's also so much sorrow and so much documentation in the way of the ways in which institutions protect people like Kaczynski and the fact that, you know, a clerk like Kavanaugh, you know, can say he's shocked, shocked to hear that there was any of this kind of um, behavior and in fact, get away with, with that, I'll call it a lie. And you also recently wrote a fiery column about the revelations that have been coming out about essential, essentially pay to play by evangelical activists when it comes to certain conservative members of the court. And then I'm thinking also of your column just yesterday about the 303 creative argument, which, I mean, the phrase new low has been so worn out at this point as to lose meaning. Um, You know, there's got to be another word for nadir that's more nadir-like. And, um, you know, where we have this total erasure and mocking of um, everybody who's supposed to be protected by our laws. So with that very long introduction, how on earth do you maintain any sense of reverence for these institutions? And how do we as advocates, the people on this on this call and otherwise, hold on to that? And I mean, I think what I'm really talking about is hope. How, how do we hold on to that in the face of such bleakness? Maybe I'll answer the second question first. Um, I was just on a briefing with some of the advocates who were involved in 303 Creative yesterday. And one of the things that was really material, and it was sort of at the heart of my column too, is if you can't tell a story you'll lose, right? And 303 Creative, for folks who weren't following the TikTok of it yesterday, we have no harm. We have, there is one party and it is a web designer who has never tried to uh, design a wedding website, nor has she ever withheld services from a same-sex couple. But she is nervous that when she goes to do that, she will face consequences. And that is the, that is literally the case. There is no record. There are no facts. There are no, at least in Master Peak's cake shop, we had the same-sex couple who sought a wedding cake and were denied services by Jack Phillips, the baker. Here we had nothing. And as you point out, what rushes in to fill the void when there's no storytelling is like hyperbole and like attempts at comedy and like ha-ha-ha and, you know, Ashley Madison jokes and J-Date jokes and... So I think the the beginning of it for me is so clear, which is storytelling, which has been something I know the ACLU understands better than anyone. But if you can't tell a compelling story, right, if you don't have Richard and Mildred loving, you can't get where you need to go. And I think one thing that's really worrisome is the court's willingness to erase stories right now. I mean, this case was, as you know, Mark Joseph Stern said in his piece yesterday in Slate, it was designed to have no story to tell. And a juggernaut of a campaign to tell a story about Lori Smith, the web designer who's just trying uh, to be a person of faith and do her job and nothing on the other side. So I think one of the ways, and it's one of the animating feelings that I had writing the book was stories move people, stories engage people, stories inspire people. I know this a little bit flies in the face of my RBG hagiography point, but I think we need stories because we need to see ourselves in stories and we need to see the ways in which people just like us were activated and inspired. But to the sort of meta question, Jillian, about my anxiety about 
this rule of law thing, which you and I have been, you know, <laughs> enthralled to for our entire careers. What do you do when it turns out that it has been a machinery of horrific abuse and oppression for vulnerable people for most of history, right? And that when Justice Samuel Alito fleetingly, you know, name checks Sir Matthew Hale, the witch burner, it's not just trolling, it's definitely trolling, but it's a kind of bracing reminder that there were important legal scholars who were witch burners and that that is what we come out of, right? A tradition of the law being uh, used to hurt vulnerable populations forever. And so I think that one of the ways I pick my way through that, and you're quite right, I mean, the subtext of this book could have been welcome to my nervous breakdown, because it's very clear that between, you know, and I cop to not being able to go into the court building after Kavanaugh because I just don't understand how we allowed that to happen and normalized it and integrated it in a on a dime. But also, as you said, the Me Too stuff. And also, I think just the series of catastrophically bad acts from this current Supreme Court, whether it's Ginny Thomas and Clarence Thomas, whether it's people donating to the Historical Society and getting paid to play time with the justices, there's so much that is shocking. And at the same time, how do you hold in your head that and the reality that but for Bridget Amiri and but for Sally Yates and Becca Heller and Robbie Kaplan, things would be so much worse. And so I think the way I pick my way through it, and this is not going to be a satisfying answer, but it is very much the improv yes slash and. Yes, the law is an agent of, you know, huge abuse. And it is also, thankfully, the thing that gives us loving and Obergefell. And it's the thing that has given us, you know, the Voting Rights Act, and it has given us so much. And I think maybe the last thing I'd say on this is that every woman in the book comes down differently on this question. And one of the reasons that I was kind of following that rope throughout the book is because Becca Heller, right, who is the founder of IRAP, is pretty candid about she's like, the law is ridiculous. It's, you know, I'm using the master's tools to take about the master apart the master's house. I don't think of this in lofty terms. This is insane. But if I can use it, to get some refugees into the country that otherwise would be denied, win-win. And then you have like Sally Yates, who's like a Frank Capra character, you know, talking about it in these like very lofty terms. And then I think, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, by the time you get to someone like Vanita Gupta, who has every reason to say and does say, the law is the problem. It's not the solution, right? After she does the Tulia, Texas case. And she writes this op-ed saying, y'all think that because I got these guys exonerated from this horrifying racist sting operation that the law worked? Like, the law did this. And, you know, getting exculpated these guys in one case is not a system that's working. And yet, even Vanita says... The law gave us Brown, you know, the law gave us Griswold. And so I guess I come down and, and it depends on the day of the week, whether I'm a Becca Heller or whether I'm a Vanita, but I do come down very much, I think, ultimately where Anita Hill comes down in the book, where, you know, faced with this question, she essentially is like, show me plan B. What's the second choice? Because if the law falls away, 
what we have is chaos. And what she says, and this is so compelling, is we will always lose. If it's about power and chaos, women will always lose. So I think it's a very, very not satisfying intellectually, but at least as a way to lay out the problem. I think that most of the women say it's kind of like that Justice Scalia joke about the bear. You know, he used to always be like, you don't have to outrun the bear. You only have to outrun the other guy. This was his favorite joke. He told it all the time. Like, we only have to outrun the chaos. That's what we have to outrun. We don't have to design a perfect legal system. But I think that, and and I know Anita Hill in that sense is the most conservative radical in the book, but I think her view that we have to make these systems like bolstered and better, because if we give up on them, it's like ninja street fighting and I am a horrible street fighter. As I think your brother very, um, <laughs> yes, about potentially joining the fray in Charlottesville. Um, yes. Well, so you alluded to Dobbs, um, and I think every time I talked to you about this book, you, you were ready to call it quits and be done with it and send in the, the manuscript, and then something horrific would happen, and you had to add it. And so something horrific happened, and you had to add it. So talk about how that went down um, in terms of the leak and, and the final opinion and the decision to include it, and then how, if at all, there's is there an asterisk to what you just said um, about feeling hopeful? I think you and I talked about this. I knew Dobbs was coming after SB8. I mean, after Texas and the shadow docket, I felt like anybody who didn't see the writing on the wall, you know, once the court agreed to nullify Roe for 10% of uh, potential pregnant people in the country, then we didn't have to wait for the leak even. We didn't have to wait for the Dobbs argument. I, I felt as though that was coming. And so in some sense, I, I I felt like I was the least shocked person in the world when Dobbs came down. And my shock when Dobbs came down, <laughs> this is very meta, was at how shocked everyone was. That to me, it revealed a huge amount of magical thinking from all the people who said the court will never do this. And, and that's not me spiking the football. It is me slightly saying every one of those interviews I did in the months before Dobbs really from the minute Kavanaugh was seated, where I said, this is coming, this is coming. Thank you. I was not hysterical. So it's not spiking the football, but it's something, maybe tiny bit of schadenfreude. But um, I think the lesson of Dobbs would be so much less asterisky if the midterms had not gone the way they did. Because to me, the midterms, to put it much more self-indulgently, it would have been very, very hard to be out flacking a book about women plus law equals magic and women and organizing in power if the midterms hadn't gone the way they did. But I felt like when you saw what happened, and I should just note parenthetically because we haven't talked about it, but like the last three chapters in the book are about voting and organizing and like on the ground. Like we totally stop doing the TikTok of, of cases and start doing the ugly, boring you know, work of how do we think about redistricting? How do we think about gerrymandering? How do we think about vote suppression? And so for me, the elections was proof positive that women were looking around and saying, how is it possible that 65% of us didn't want this outcome and we got it anyway? And that's just not just Dobbs, right? That's also Bruin in guns. And to be able to look around and have the kind of scales fall off your eyes where you're like, oh, it turns out we live in a minority rule situation that is minority ruled by design, right? If you think about the Electoral College and the malapportioned Senate and gerrymandering and what have you. 
So if in fact the response to that had been, oh, well, I guess I won't vote, this book would have really been hard to be selling right now. But when in the five states that put abortion itself on the ballot, every single one of them vindicated abortion rights. So it tells me that democracy can still do this if it's not choked off, you know, broken democracy as represented by malapportionment and the Electoral College. So I think the hope is in marrying together these two basic themes of the book, which is, you know, women are amazing. Women love the law. They need the law. They'll fight for it. And the outcomes of the midterms where we really saw that happen, despite, by the way, a lot of polling that said like women were over it, right? Like, we're good. Dobbs was, ah, it was a bad week, but now we're on to the price of gas. And it was really very fun to see women not get rolled and women not just showing up on abortion, but door knocking and fighting in Michigan to get the ballot initiative onto the ballot and postcarding and doing all the stuff that women have done to fight for democracy. So for me, I think the hope is, and this is the hope of the book, if all the Polly Murrays and all the Ruth Baby Ginsburgs like work together and are really focused on this, I actually think we win. I do think we were on screen save for a while. And I mean, I don't know how it is that, you know, we pretty much fell asleep after the Warren court and convinced ourselves that we could lose the, Like we just went on total screen save, can lose the Warren court. It's okay. We're still winning. Oh, we're losing. We've been losing for the 20 years I've been covering the court. So I think that if that's the lesson, then it doesn't mean that Dobbs wins or that Justice Alito wins. I think it means that democracy for a while was operating as it was intended to operate as a minoritarian uh, check on majority rule and that the majority woke up. And that that's a good story. I can I can sit in that. And you talked a bit about storytelling and being an effective storyteller is sort of one of the most important tools we need in our toolbox. You obviously deploy humor, um, not just in your um, oral presentations, but in your writing to tremendous and um, eviscerating effects sometimes. What have you seen among advocates in terms of an effective deployment of humor? Or is there such a thing when you're at the Supreme Court? First of all, you know, spoiler, uh, Jillian and I became friends, I think, because she was one of the funniest people in our freshman class. So this is like a total inside knowledge. Now we go way back on the making each other laugh front. Um, I mean, I think humor is an amazing tactic. And I think Freud even writes about this for taking down the temperature, right? If somebody laughs, like all sorts of things happen cognitively that allow them to be vulnerable and also make you less threatening. And I think as women, that's a really, um, if you have it in your arsenal, it's a really useful tool because people are less likely to like get stabby and crazy with you if you've made them laugh. And so it's definitely, um, I think useful if you have access to it and you, I mean, watch Elena Kagan on any given day. She is like coffee out your nose, hilarious. And she's so quick and it's just really hard to be angry at her because of it. Were there any surprises for you when you were writing the book, like a certain person you thought you really knew what they were like or um, what they were going to tell you, or you thought you knew everything about a particular issue or just something that really made you have to stop and sort of reframe? 
you know, one thing, I, I will say there are two things, Jillian. One is, um, and I remember going to my editor at Penguin and saying, like, I've interviewed Robbie Kaplan and her chapter is about the white supremacists and, and Nazis who marched in Charlottesville. And as Jillian said, that was my hometown. It was very personal. And I went to my editor and I was like, I've interviewed her five times. I'm not finding like a gooey Carmel core here. Like this is not a person who underneath all these layers is, you know, turns out to be like Sally Yates is so tender and Becca Heller. And she's like, not everybody has a gooey Carmel core and that's okay. Uh, so that was one surprise, you know, which is not to say, I mean, I, 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 I love Robbie, uh, but some people just are not, you know, built that way. And I think maybe I would say that the other surprise, which shouldn't have surprised me, is that in the weeks after the book came out, every single woman in the book wrote to me to say, I love this book. Thank you. But I don't belong in it. Like everyone else here is a warrior and a gladiator. And like, I should not have been in your book. And like, that includes Sally Yates, right? Like that includes people who really do have tote bags and t-shirts. So I just, maybe that, circles us back to Polly Murray and the ways in which women do change or how they perceive themselves. I joke, um, if I had written about nine sort of similarly situated men, I might've gotten emails that were like, my chapter should have been a little longer and why aren't there pictures? Um, but maybe that's unfair. Uh, but I do think that that sense of I'm not special. Anyone would do this has been a surprise to me because like, I just think every single one of these women are just like rock stars. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but it was a surprise. Thanks so much, doll. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate your feedback. Until next week. Stay kind.